The Most Holy Incarnation, Part 22, The Holy Family Among Robbers. At some distance from the road by which they were traveling, a light glimmered through the darkness. It proceeded from a hut belonging to a gang of robbers who had hung a light on a neighboring tree, thus to allure travelers. The road, too, here and there, was broken by pits over which cords with little bells were stretched. The ringing of these bells gave notice to the robbers of the presence of luckless wayfarers. All on a sudden, I saw a man with about five comrades surrounding the Holy Family. All were actuated by wicked intentions. But when they looked at the child, I saw a glittering ray like an arrow penetrating the heart of the leader, who straightway commanded his comrades to offer no injury to the strangers. Mary also saw the ray. The robber now took the Holy Family to his home and told his wife how strangely his heart had been moved. People were at first shy and shamefaced, something very unusual for them. Still they approached, little by little, and gathered around the Holy Family, who had seated themselves in a corner on the ground. Some of the men went in and out, while the women brought to Mary little rolls, fruits, honeycomb, and cups containing something to drink. The ass also was placed under shelter. The woman cleared out a small room for Mary and brought her a little tub of water in which to bathe the child. She also dried the thwathing bands for her at the fire. The husband was deeply impressed by the demeanor of the holy family and especially the appearance of the child. He said to his wife, This Hebrew child is no ordinary child. Beg the lady to allow us to wash our leprous child in his bathing water. It may perhaps do it some good. The wife went to request the favor of the Blessed Virgin, but before she had time to speak, Mary bade her take the water she had used for Jesus' bath, wash the sick child in it, and it would become cleaner than it was before attacked by the disease. The boy was about three years old and stiff from leprosy. His mother carried him in and put him into the bath. Wherever the water touched him, the leprosy fell like scales to the bottom of the tub. The boy became clean and well. The mother was out of herself with joy. She wanted to embrace Mary and the child Jesus. But Mary, stretching out her hand, ordered her off. She would allow neither the child nor herself to be touched by her. She told her to dig a hole deep down to a rock and pour the water just used into it that she might always have it for similar purposes. Mary spoke with her long, and exacted from her a promise to embrace the first opportunity of escape from her present abode. The people were all delighted. They stood around the holy family, gazing at them in wonder. During the night, other members of their band came to the hut, and to them the boy's cure was related. The robbers' reverential bearing toward the holy family was so much the more remarkable, since I saw that night many travelers, attracted to their hut by the light, immediately taken prisoner and carried deep into the forest to an immense cave that served for their special storehouse. It lay under a thicket, the entrance closely concealed. In it were clothes, carpets, meat, goats, sheep, and innumerable other stolen things, all in profusion. I saw also boys about seven or eight years old, whom the robbers had kidnapped, 
They were cared for by an old woman who lived in the cave. Mary slept none that night. She sat upon her couch on the floor perfectly still. At early dawn, the Holy Family started again on their journey in spite of the robber and his wife, who wanted them to stay longer. They took with them a supply of provisions, then put up by their grateful host and hostess, who also accompanied them a part of the way that they might escape the snares. The robber and his wife took leave of the Holy Family with expressions of deep feeling, uttering these remarkable words. Remember us wherever you go. Upon hearing them, I had a vision in which I saw that the cured boy afterward turned out to be the good thief, who on the cross said to Jesus, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. The robber's wife, after some time, joined those that dwelt around the balsam garden. The holy family went from here further on into the desert. When they had again lost all trace of anything like a path, they were a second time surrounded by all kinds of animals, among them huge winged lizards and even serpents, which pointed out the way to them. At a later period, when unable to advance through the sandy plain in which they were, saw a very lovely miracle. On either side of the road, sprouted up the plant Rose of Jericho, with its crisp branches, tiny flowers in the center, and its straight root. On they went now right joyously, watching as far as the eye could see these plants springing up, and so across the whole plain. I saw that it was revealed to the Blessed Virgin, that at some future day the people of the country would gather these roses and sell them to travelers in exchange for bread. The name of this region sounded like Gaza, or Goze. I saw the Holy Family arrive at a town and district called Lepe or Lape, in which were numerous canals and ditches with high dams. I saw them crossing the water on a raft. Mary sat on a log, and the ass was standing in something like a trowel or tub. Two ugly, brown-complexioned, half-naked men, with flat noses and protruding lips, ferried them over. Our holy travelers came now to the house on the outskirts of the town, but the occupants were so rough and pitiless that, without saying a word, Mary and Joseph moved further on. I think this was the first pagan Egyptian city they had yet reached. They had made up to this time ten days' journey in the Jewish country and then in the wilderness. I next saw the Holy Family on Egyptian territory, in a level, green country full of pasture grounds. In the trees were stationed idols, like swathed dolls, or like fishes wrapped in broad bands upon which were figures or letters. Occasionally I saw people fat, but short in stature, approaching these idols and venerating them. The Holy Family sought a little rest under the cattle shed, the cattle going out of their own accord to make room for them. They were in want of food, having neither bread nor water. Mary no longer had nourishment for her child, and no one gave them anything. Every species of human misery was experienced by them during this flight. At last, some shepherds drew near to water their cattle. They too would have gone away without giving them anything, had not Joseph's entreaties moved them to unlock the well and allow them to have a little water. Again I saw the Holy Family weary and exhausted in a forest, at whose egress stood a slender date tree the fruit all clustered on top. Mary approached the tree, the child Jesus on her arm, prayed and raised the child up to it. Instantly the tree bowed down to its top as if kneeling, so that Mary could gather all its fruit, 
and afterward remained in that position. I saw Mary dividing a quantity of the fruit among the naked children who had run after them from the last village. At a quarter of an hour's distance from this tree stood another unusually large one of the same kind, very high and hollow like an old oak. In it the Holy Family lay concealed from the people that followed them. That evening I saw them taking shelter within the walls of a ruined place, where they stayed overnight. Part 23. The Balsam Garden On the next day, the Holy Family continued their journey through a sandy, desolate wilderness. Famishing for water and exhausted by weariness, they sat down on one of the sand hills, and the Blessed Virgin sent up a cry to God. Suddenly, a stream of pure water gushed forth at her side. Joseph removed the sand hill that was over it, and a clear, beautiful little fountain jetted up. He made a channel for it, and it flowed over quite a large space, disappearing again near its source. Here they refreshed themselves, and Mary bathed the child Jesus, while Joseph gave drink to the ass and filled the water bottles. I saw all kinds of animals like turtles drinking at the gushing waters. They did not appear at all afraid of the Holy Family. The soil over which the water had flowed soon began to clothe itself with verdure, and numbers of balsam trees afterward grew there. When the Holy Family returned from Egypt, those trees were large enough to furnish balsam for their refreshment. The place soon grew into a little settlement. Wherever the heathens planted these trees, they withered. They thrived only when the Jews whom the Holy Family had known in this country went to live there. I think the wife of that robber, whose boy had been cured of leprosy, by the bath of the child Jesus, went there too, for she soon escaped from the robbers. Her boy, however, remained with them some time longer. A balsam hedge surrounded the garden, and in its center were several large fruit trees. At a subsequent period, another large well was dug, out of which quantities of water were raised by means of a wheel turned by oxen. This water mingled with that of Mary's spring, and watered the whole garden unmixed, it would have proved injurious. I have seen that the oxen employed in turning the wheel could not by any means be forced to work from Saturday noon till early on Monday morning. Note. Compare Catholic Missions, an account of the Balsam Garden, by an eyewitness. 1883, page 234. Part 24. The Holy Family Reach Heliopolis. I saw the Holy Family on their way to Heliopolis. From their last night lodgings, they were accompanied thither by a good man who, I think, was one of the workmen on that canal over which they had been ferried. They now crossed a long and very high bridge over a wide river, the Nile, which appeared to have several branches, and came to a place before the city gate, which was surrounded by a kind of promenade. Here on a tapering pedestal stood a great idol with the head of an ox, and in its arms something like the figure of a thwazed child. The idol was encompassed by a circle of benches or tables of stone upon which the worshippers laid their sacrifices. Not far off was a very large tree, under which the Holy Family sat down to rest. They had scarcely seated themselves. When the earth began to quake, the idol tottered and tilted over. A hue and cry instantly arose from the people, and many of the workmen on the canal in the neighborhood came rushing up. But the good man who had accompanied the Holy Family started with them for the city. They were already at the opposite side of the idle place when the terrified crowd, 
with menacing and abusive words, angrily surrounded them. Suddenly the earth heaved, and a huge tree fell, its roots breaking up out of the ground, and there arose a lake of muddy water into which the idol splashed. It sank so deep that one could scarcely see its horns, and some of the most wicked of the bystanders sank with it. The holy family now entered the city unmolested, and put up near an idolatrous temple, a large stone building containing many rooms. Some of the idols in the temples of the city were likewise overturned. Heliopolis is also called On. Azeneth, wife of the Egyptian Joseph, resided here with the pagan priest Putiphar, and here also Dionysus, the Aeropagite, studied. The city extends to a great distance around the many-branched river. One sees it from afar, lying high above the general level. The river flows through it under the arches that support some of the buildings. Great logs lie in some parts of the river branches, placed there to enable the inhabitants to cross. I saw the ruins of enormous buildings, huge masses of heavy masonry, towers half-standing, and even temples almost entire. I saw two pillars like towers, around the outside of which one could mount to the top. The Holy Family dwelt under a low colonnade, in which there were other dwellings besides their own. The supporting pillars were rather low, some round, some square, and above ran a highway for the accommodation of vehicles and pedestrians. Opposite this colonnade was a pagan temple with two courts. Joseph put up before their little abode a screen of light woodwork. There was room for the ass also. The screen or light wall that Joseph put up was of the same kind as he was accustomed to make. They were marked behind a similar screen and set up against the wall, an altar consisting of a small table covered with red and over that a white transparent cloth. On it stood a lamp. I saw St. Joseph working at home, and often also abroad. He made long rods with round knobs at the ends, little three-legged stools with a handle by which to grasp them, and a certain kind of basket. He made also a great many light wicker partitions, and little light towers, some hexagonal, others octagonal. They were formed of long, thin boards, tapering toward the top and ending in a knob. They had an entrance, and were large enough to allow a man to sit inside, as in a sentry box. They had steps outside, up which one could mount. I saw little towers like these standing here and there before the pagan temples, also on the flat roofs of the houses. People used to sit in them. Perhaps they were watchhouses, or maybe they were intended as screens from the sun. I saw the Blessed Virgin weaving tapestry and doing another kind of work. For the latter she used a staff, on the top of which a knot was fastened. I cannot say whether she was spinning or not. I often saw people visiting her and the little infant Jesus. The child lay on the ground by Mary's side, in a kind of cradle like a little boat. Sometimes I saw it raised on a frame like a song jack. There were not many Jews in Heliopolis, and I saw them going about it with a downcast look, as if they had no right to live there. North of Heliopolis, between it and the Nile, which there divides into several branches, lay the little territory of Goshen, and in it a little place cut up by canals, among which dwelt numbers of Jews whose religious ideas were very much confused. Several of them became acquainted with the Holy Family, and married at all kinds of feminine work for them, receiving as payment bread and other provisions. The Jews in the land of Goshen had a temple, which they compared with the Temple of Solomon, 
but it was very different. Not far from his dwelling, Joseph built an oratory where the resident Jews, who possessed no such place of their own, used to assemble with the Holy Family for prayer. It was surmounted by a light cupola, which could be thrown open, thus enabling the worshippers to stand under the open sky. In the center of the hall stood an altar, or table of sacrifice, covered as usual with red and white. On it lay rolls of parchment. The priest or teacher was a very old man. The men and women were not so separated from one another at prayer as in Palestine. The men stood on one side, the women on the other. The Holy Family dwelt a little more than a year at Heliopolis. They had much to suffer from the Egyptians who hated and persecuted them on account of their overturned idols. As the houses were all solidly built, Joseph could not find work at his trade. They left Heliopolis, therefore, but not before they had learned from an angel of the slaughter of the Bethlehemite babes. Both Mary and Joseph were deeply grieved, and the child Jesus, who was now able to walk, being a year and a half old, shed tears the whole day. Part 25. The Murder of the Innocent Children I saw the mothers with their boys, from infants in the arms up to the age of two years, going to Jerusalem. They are from those different places around the holy city, which Herod had placed garrisons, and in which, by means of officials, he had issued a proclamation to that effect. These from Bethlehem, Gilgal, and Hebron. Saw many women, even from the Arabian frontiers, taking their children to Jerusalem, and these had more than a day's journey to make. The mothers went in bands, some with two children and riding on asses. On their arrival in the city, they were all conducted to a large building, and the husbands who accompanied some of them dismissed. The mandate was joyously obeyed, for the poor people imagined they were going to receive a reward. The building into which the mothers and their children were ushered was not far from the house occupied by Pilate at a later period. It stood alone, and so encompassed by walls that no one outside could hear anything going on within. A gateway through double walls led into a large court, enclosed on all sides by buildings. Those to the right and left were of one story, that in the middle, which looked like an old, deserted synagogue, was two stories in height. From all three, doors opened into the court. The middle building was a hall of justice, for I saw on the court before it a stone block, pillars with chains, and such trees that could be bound together by their branches, and then suddenly snapped asunder, in order to tear people to pieces. The mothers were led through the court, and into the two side buildings, where they were shut up. It looked to me at first as if they were in a sort of hospital, or lazar house. When they saw themselves thus unexpectedly deprived of liberty, they began to fear, to cry, and to lament. The lower story of the court of justice was a great hall like a prison or guard room. Upper one was also a large hall from which windows opened upon the court. The officers of justice were assembled in the latter, rolls of writing lying before them on tables. Herod himself was there. He wore his crown and a purple mantle, bordered with black and lined with white fur. He stood at the windows with many others, looking down upon the slaughter of the innocents. The mothers, one by one, with their boys, were summoned from the side buildings into the great hall under the judgment hall. On their entrance, the children were taken from them by the soldiers and carried out into the court, where about twenty others were actively at work with swords and lances, piercing the little creatures through throat and heart. 
Some of the children were still in swaddling clothes, infants in their mother's arms, while others, able to run around, wore little woven dresses. The soldiers did not remove the children's clothing, but, having pierced them through the heart and throat, they grasped them by one arm or leg and slung them together in a heap. It was a terrible sight. The mothers were, one after another, pushed back into the large hall by the soldiers. When the fate of their little ones dawned upon them, they raised a frightful cry, tore their hair, and clung to one another. There were so many of them, and toward the last, they were so crowded together, they could scarcely stir. I think the slaughter lasted till near evening. The bodies of the murdered children were buried together in a great pit in the court. I saw the mothers that night fettered, and taken back to their homes by the soldiers. Similar scenes were enacted in other places, for the massacre was carried on during several days. The number of the holy innocents was indicated to me by another number which sounded like, and which I had to repeat until I think, the whole amounted to seven hundred and seven, or seven hundred and seventeen. The place of the children's massacre in Jerusalem was a subsequent hall of justice, and not far from that of Pilate, but it was at his time very greatly changed. At Christ's death, I saw the pit in which the murdered children were buried fall in. Their souls appeared and left the place. Elizabeth had fled with John into the desert. After a long search, she found a cave, and there she remained with him for forty days. After that, I saw that an Essenian belonging to the community on Mount Horeb, and a relative of Anna the prophetess, brought food to John, at first every eight, afterward every fourteen days, and no otherwise provided for him. Before Herod's persecution, John could have been hidden in the neighborhood of his parents' house, but he had made his escape into the desert, impelled by divine inspiration. He was destined to grow up in solitude, apart from intercourse with his fellow beings, and destitute of the customary nourishment of man. I saw that that wilderness produced certain fruits, berries, and herbs.